Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. Welcome to Head to Toe as we move further around the body. My name is Daisy Cunningham and I am the college's heritage manager and librarian. And my name's Olivia Howarth and I'm a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage. And today we've made it as far as the breast. When we're talking about the breast, we are talking about the sort of external mammary glands. And I need to say that because in a lot of historical books and texts, they talk about the breast as in the chest. So if they say there's a problem with the breast, what they often mean is the lungs, the breathing, the respiratory system. We are not looking at any of that stuff today. That is a whole other podcast to come. This is the external breast. So I guess, Olivia, just to start off, is there anything particularly interesting that you've dug up? Well, I found a non-fact, somewhat mythical tribe of warriors who were all women. And the myth was that they cut off their right breast so that they could draw their bows more easily. But that fact has been debunked. Supposedly, it stemmed from the idea that the word Amazon sounds like the Greek words Ah, meaning without, and mesos, meaning breast. I'm very disappointed. I I read that in a very accurate comic book as a 10-year-old, and (laughs) I've taken it as fact ever since. But if we're going with non-facts, this is maybe a theme for this episode, (laughs) but I got quite fascinated by the witch's teat or the witch's tit Mm. as part of historical breast reading. So with anything that's sort of a myth, there's obviously not one set version. There's lots of different you know, versions of how this was supposed to work. But it was supposedly used by the witch to breastfeed their familiar, the sort of agent of the devil. So it's usually a cat, but it can be a weasel or a ferret or, or various other creatures. Now, a witch's teat could take the form of a nipple, which you'd assume that it would, given the name. But given how much they wanted to find and condemn so many women as witches, not every woman has a vestal third nipple. So it could also be a mole or a scar or just a fold of flesh or basically whatever the witch hunter wanted it to be in any given moment. And it's supposed to feed the familiar with blood rather than with milk. Again, it's the whole sort of milk is nourishing and life-giving and, you know, blood is is cold. Um, And that's where the phrase cold as a witch's tit comes from, because it is supposed to be inherently cold and evil as opposed to, you know, the warmth of a a normal breast. That seems very, like, at odds with humoral theory that said blood was hot. Humoral theory, when they try and actually apply it in the real world, very quickly seems to often fall apart. Another thing that I got quite sort of fascinated by is the history of wet nursing. So having someone else feed your, your breastfeed your child. And this has been around for such a long time, sort of since antiquity, 
Obviously, in some contexts, of course, it, w- it would be a very ancient practice because, you know, if, if the mother died or if the mother just didn't have milk, you know, y- you need to do it in order to keep the baby alive. But then there are also, you know, plenty of, of periods in history when it's become really fashionable. So it's not about the sort of basic need. It's about, you know, people for various reasons, not wanting to feed their own child. But let's default assume with all of this that we're talking about wealthy people almost all of the time. <laughs> we're talking about people who have enough money to spare that they can pay for all these things. So it's an indulgence, not a necessity. So there's a big culture of it around, you know, just the idea that it will keep your breasts looking youthful, that you will keep being attractive. Unsurprisingly, um, in Victorian Britain, there's a lot of sort of shame. You know, it's unseemly to breastfeed your own child, even just in the presence of your husband or or your servants or your family. You want a wet nurse because you are trying to act in a way that is sort of appropriate to your class or society. But also breastfeeding stops you from having more babies very quickly, basically. That's my wonderful scientific explanation. You know, so on the one hand, it acts as a contraceptive, which for some people might be good. But if you want lots of male heirs, you want to be back in the game as fast as you can. That's a very technical language here. Back in the game. And I suppose one thing that's written about quite a bit and is glaringly obvious now I think about it, but I hadn't really thought about it before. In my head, the wet nurse was sort of a one-on-one transaction. I was picturing it like a woman with her family and she brings in a wet nurse. But of course, wet nurses are quite common in workhouses, in orphanages, in foundling hospitals, that they would be employed by the institution because of the number of parentless children. But then you have the the kind of counterbalance of it, of all the negativity that came along with it. So you were not a proper mother if you didn't breastfeed your children. But also there was this fear, and particularly in the 1500s and the 1600s, it seems that you could inherit things via the person who fed you. So rather than your traits coming from your biological parents, there's this idea that you wouldn't want a wet nurse who had bad eyesight or a hunchback or even who had red hair or who was left-handed or who wasn't very bright or something because all of those traits believed to pass down through the mother's milk. Mm. Uh, There was a big trend uh, in medieval early renaissance art to show the Virgin Mary breastfeeding. On on the sort of note of changing views on breastfeeding, I wondered if we could talk for a moment about the clip that we have coming up in a minute from the Welcome Collection. It's a gentleman called Frank Roundtree, who was Sheffield's health education officer. And it dates from 1972, and it's pretty typical of 1972. And I just wondered, you found this clip, Olivia. It is... um interesting slice of history and I guess shows like a very 1970s attitude towards the female body, particularly from a male point of view. There is a an anatomical description, but also thrown in with that, lots of societal opinion. When I was listening to it, I wrote down a quote, which is, a hefty woman, a heavy woman, a fat woman. <laughs> um, which was like, Okay. Um, I think what particularly fascinates me about this clip, and and maybe it's sort of a a broader cultural thing, probably now as well as then, is this isn't really medical. What he's talking about is aesthetics. It's attractiveness. It's, you know, the form that the breasts take as a sort of, as you say, the kind of the male gaze. 
it's it's sort of treating something or medicalizing something that it's not really about medicine. It's just about what, in his opinion, looks nice. And that's the tricky thing when you get into particularly, you know, female body parts. We have an assumption, and obviously this isn't true because in the 21st century, we're still riddled with biases. It's not that they were a certain way in 1500 and we're perfect now, but it still kind of hits you when you hear something from the 1970s, which feels like it's very recent, relatively speaking, that it's not evidence-based. It's just, I think this looks nice. Mm. I did find a couple of quotes from a female perspective. It was a midwife in the 17th century called Jane Sharp. And she was also writing about rest from the point of view of breastfeeding. She wrote, strange things have come forth from the breasts. Sometimes menstrual blood, unchanged, runs forth this way at certain seasons. Hippocrates writes that when the blood comes out of the nipples, those women are mad. Astley Cooper, the 1800 surgeon, he did a lot of work around studying the breast. The the books I was reading often used the word harvested. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but he harvested breasts from uh, dead women. And I think it was over 200 breasts that he injected with various dyes and things to see how they, they worked, the wax dyes, and try to figure out the properties of breast milk. Apparently, he made cream cheese with breast milk. I don't like cream cheese anyway, so that's already lost me even before we get into the fact that it's the breast milk. I guess there's, there's still a lot of um, moral opinions about breast milk now, because they're people that make ice cream from breast milk and sell that. But then people that donate their breast milk to hospitals for um, premature babies? I don't know. I, from a personal perspective, I feel the same about this as I feel about many other things. It's about consent. As long as you yeah. know what you're getting and you're making a choice, that's fine. Supposedly, the images of Christ as a mother figure giving nourishment to people from wounds from his chest medieval and renaissance christians would have understood that the blood and milk were interchangeable or, interchangeable or, or, yeah. yeah they apparently believed that milk was a kind of purified blood so in these images these paintings are we talking literally from his breast or are we talking from one of the cuts i think we're talking from one of the cuts Okay. This then gets into the witch's teeth thing, because surely that would then have implications of like paganism almost, because that then is quite similar to what they're accusing witches of doing, feeding people with their blood. Oh man, this is a whole can of worms. (laughs) Okay, so another side of the history of medicine and in the context of the history of the breast is the corset. As I understand it, this is going to be my caveat to a lot of this, because there will definitely be people who know an awful lot more about this than me. What we think of as being a course that really is from the 1500s. So in the sense of it having very specific boning, rather than just having it be like leather or some sort of restricting thing that was just made small, and then, you know, laces or ribbon up the back that you tighten, that's from the 1500s. In the in the 1700s and the 1800s, they start having what are called gussets at the hips and at the bust, and gussets in this context are sort of basically like a flared bit. So you have a very restricted body, but then you have a bit that sort of flares out out and that 
part is accentuated because of the flaring, but also the fat that's pushed in elsewhere is sort of pushed up. So what was your stomach becomes your <laughs> cleavage almost. And then you start putting sort of padding and things like that in there. And really corseting, although it went through different styles, you know, in the Georgian or Edwardian, it really lasts until the 20th century, until the sort of 1910s, 1920s, when you get that very androgynous form. I have an interesting additional fact about the sports bra. So the first sports bra was patented by someone called Lisa Lindahl in 1979. And she and her sister were both runners and felt like there wasn't anything out there that would be supportive enough. So she invented the sports bra, but the original design was invented when she sewed two jock straps together. For some reason, my brain initially thought, oh, that's repulsive. And then I thought, oh, there would be new jock straps. Yeah. <laughs> but for some reason, my brain sports. had to go through a process and get to the point that, okay. But it's interesting that a male garment created a female one. case study today, we're going to look at the history of wet nurses, that is, women who breastfeed someone else's child. There are a range of reasons why a wet nurse would be employed. Perhaps the mother had died, perhaps she couldn't nurse the child, or perhaps she chose not to. Sometimes the choice not to breastfeed was a social one. For upper-class women, breastfeeding could be considered uncouth or somehow inappropriate. Perhaps it would force their removal from social occasions or damage their physique. Or perhaps they saw breastfeeding as simply a tedious chore. In other cases, the desire to quickly become pregnant again could influence the decision not to breastfeed. When a wet nurse was hired, they could either come to live with the family, or the child would be sent away from the family to live with the wet nurse, often in the country. In those cases, the child could live with their wet nurse without seeing their families, often for as long as three or four years. But wet nurses were not only employed by individual families. It was common for foundling hospitals, establishments to house orphans and abandoned children, to employ wet nurses. Wet nurses were also often employed by workhouses and infirmaries. One English physician, writing in the mid-1500s, argued that amongst the risks associated with employing a wet nurse were that Quote, affections and qualities passeth forth through the milk into the child, making the child of like condition and manners. So the personality, the morality, the temperament of the wet nurse was transmitted to the child. And given that wet nurses were characterised by many authors as alcoholics, lacking in manners and loose women, this was seen as a major risk. Perhaps more of a realistic risk was the possibility of transmitting something else from nurse to child. Syphilis. Wet nursing was far more popular in France than any other country, and while we don't have exact numbers, it is estimated that over half of children were wet nursed there in the 1700s. The practice was so common that a bureau of wet nurses was established in Paris in 1769. Its purpose was to oversee and regulate the employment of these wet nurses, including carrying out some very invasive examinations. Criticisms of wet nursing increased over the course of the 1700s and 1800s. More and more doctors were critical of the practice, highlighting the risks attached to it, including the potential damage to the child of exposure to immoral and uncouth life. But this didn't mean the actual use of wet nurses declined. Indeed, with the growth of industrialization and mass relocation to cities, 
More women from lower incomes sought employment in factories and domestic service. As a result, poor women also began to send their children to wet nurses, often living in very poor conditions. The notion of employment of a wet nurse being a mark of status had definitely evaporated, but they were still very much in demand, and many advertisements for wet nurses can be found in newspapers in the 1800s, not just in major cities and the national press, but in the Perthshire Journal, the Caithness Courier and the Dundee Advertiser. This short clip is courtesy of the Welcome Collection and first aired on BBC Radio Sheffield in 1972. Well, with us once again in the Walk Right In studio is Frank Roundtree, Sheffield's Health Education Officer. Frank, we uh, see and hear an awful lot about uh, women's lib these days, about the burning of bras and what have you, and indeed, um, very often in society these days, it's almost commonplace for ladies not to wear bras. Just crossed my mind the other day that this might possibly have some repercussions for them. Well, repercussions, uh, I would say, uh, could well be. But not of the kind that you're thinking. I think it would be rather horrifying to hear breasts repercussing against the chest wall of the bearer as they walk along by the thousand. But seriously, uh, this is a question that has come up on several occasions from young girls and young women who wonder whether bralessness is going to uh, be a harmful thing. In point of fact, no, although uh, certain things do happen when a woman doesn't support her breast. In fact, it's got a name. The condition that develops is called Cooper's Droop. And this is called for a man, Astley Cooper, who lived at the beginning of the last century, a very famous anatomist, a surgeon, who named ligaments that supported the, the breast. These are Cooper's ligaments. Now, these ligaments can stretch if the breast is allowed to swing free. And once having stretched, uh, they never tighten up again. And they are likely to stretch, especially if the woman is a fairly hefty, heavy woman, she's fat, if she's pregnant, or if she's lactating, if she's got milk in her breasts. The ligaments will stretch even more under those particular circumstances. Now, as I say, when once they've been stretched, they're not going to contract, they're not going to shorten, and no amount of exercises will bring them up either. Exercises, of course, will help the general appearance and for women who have developed this drooping bosom line uh, chest exercises whilst not tightening up these ligaments will in fact improve general posture and by improving general posture uh, it will improve the silhouette the thing i must point out though is that there is no effect on health whether a woman's breasts are taut and tight into her chest wall or whether they do, do droop and swing about it's really a question of what appeals most. Uh, whether we like pendulous breasts, we accept them uh, for, as a social phenomenon, or whether we prefer the tight uppens is something that society will decide over time. There are many cultures where, simply because they haven't got bras, the women normally do have pendulous breasts. The breast is a very important piece of equipment. There is no doubt whatsoever about this. We encourage uh, our expectant mothers to breastfeed their babies. And I'm one of the people who says, breast is best. And I hope that more and more young women will support me in that.
Welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today. So it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. A lot of the disorders of the breasts described in recipe books from the 1600s and 1700s relate to childbirth and nursing children, and a lot of the ingredients of the treatments, if they had been eaten rather than applied to the skin, would have been pretty appetising. These included fresh butter, eggs, bread, parsley, bran of wheat, honey, mint, bean meal, cinnamon oil and fried beans. Various of these would be mixed together, boiled, often in wine, and made into a plaster or ointment which was applied to the skin. The treatment from one printed recipe book for an overabundance of breast milk was a simple one. Quote, Endure much fasting. While to increase the quantity of milk, quote, take the ashes of the burnt hooves of cows. One handwritten recipe from the recipe book of Mary Sayer and dating from the early 1700s contains a recipe for what it calls Mrs. Babington's Black Salve, which, it is noted, was recommended by a midwife to dry excessive milk during the period of lying in or post-childbirth confinement. This was, presumably, aimed at the more well-off than the printed recipes. The ingredients are certainly more extravagant. Quote, Take two ounces of fine myrrh, beat to fine powder, and sift it three ounces of lethargy of gold. Uh, should say as a footnote here that lethargy of gold is actually lead oxide mixed with red lead, just in case you thought this was such an extravagant recipe that it had actual gold in it. Back to the recipe now. Six ounces of white lead beaten small, one pint and a half of salad oil, and when just warm, put in the white lead, the gold, and then the myrrh. Then be sure stir it continually all the time, till it turns black as jet. Then it is enough. Then take a pan, butter it at the bottom, then put in a quart or three pints of water. Let the salve stand till it begins to feel stiff. Then put half the salve into the water, butter your hands and make it into rolls. The fire must not be too hot. A good way to make salve into rolls. Take a piece of paper and roll it up close at one end, and the bigness you propose making rolls. First let it be thoroughly oiled, then stick the close end into sand, and pour in your salve into your paper when you think it is of a proper coldness. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at rcpeheritage and we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.